Uh, last night I was watching In the Mood for Love. Uh, have you ever seen it? Yeah, many times. Great film. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's one of those movies that there, there are so many movies, it seems, that really open up for me in new and interesting ways as I get older, especially a movie like this that's so much about memory. And it's hard to talk about this movie without just like descending into banalities and cliches. <laughs> but it's a movie that seems to exist inside of a memory and I, I think it helps if you've lived a certain amount of time to have had you know connections lost and found and opportunities that appeared and disappeared and things you didn't appreciate at the time just to just to pass by well beginning on a very sentimental note today i should what sounds like i should watch in the mood for love again beautiful film you know very controversial you know a universally agreed upon great movie turns out is great but anyway, the reason I uh, watched it was because a week or two ago, there's a new uh, traveling retrospective of Wong Kar Wai's movies. Criterion's going to put it out on a Blu-ray set, and you know it's going to show at various theaters next year. And th- they've been restorations, quote-unquote. But the thing is, they're not actually restorations, because Wong Kar Wai put out a note where he was saying that actually in certain cases, when restoring the films, he realized that he had the opportunity to alter them in such a way to better reflect his original vision. And and he's going for it. So really, these are George Lucas versions of the movies. Not as extreme as that, I'm sure. I don't I don't think there's a scene where Tony Lung talks to Jabba the Hutt. But, you know, there are certain scenes that were in black and white at one point and are now in color and vice versa. Like in uh, ha- It's Happy Together, right? That has the black and white sections. That one in Fallen Angels. Yeah. And certain movies that have new tints on them, basically. And I was very troubled to hear this. And I want to I wanna talk about this a bit because I realized that for most of my life, I've been a very stubborn auteurist. You know, <laughs> I, I've, I've strongly believed in the right of the director to do basically anything. The director is God. But more seriously, I've always approached, I think, film and most art forms primarily as a conversation between an artist and an audience. And I was trying to figure out to what extent I had the right to feel upset about these changes that he's made to his movies. And I think I have the right to feel upset about it because in that equation, the audience is half of it, right? If it's a communication between artist and audience, I think at some point the audience gets to have some ownership on it or gets to stake some claim on the work. And it seems that this is going to be like Star Wars, where these new versions kind of become the default, the definitive versions of these movies. The original versions won't be available in the same way anymore. And that that bothers me. That troubles me. Well, it's it's in keeping with what I understand about Wong Kar Wai and his method, which is that he's absurdly meticulous. I mean, as I understand it, In the Mood for Love began as a plan for some kind of TV series and involved kind of a year of filming um, and it was in that process that it evolved into the film that we know. There was a point when it was going to be a comedy about food. Right. I mean, so we're already dealing with somebody who has a very, uh, I mean, a very odd artistic process and one that is, you know, yeah, as I said, incredibly meticulous. So it doesn't surprise me that he's undertaking this. But yeah, I would say I probably share your concern that it, it could overshadow the original versions. I guess a way of reconciling that is to treat uh, the new versions as new Wong Kar Wai movies or as other entries into Wong Kar Wai's canon. I love that idea. I love the idea of an alternate version of some of these. 
as long as I can still access the original version. Your Star Wars example is funny there because the original Star Wars movies, I mean, for a while anyway, have actually been pretty difficult to access. I remember maybe sometime in university finding, you know, the original like non-special editions of the original trilogy on, you know, I don't know, one of those DC++ or Shakespeare, one of those like dormitory torrent sites. And those were, they were fan edits. They weren't even the original versions. Like somebody had actually taken the time to restore, like to to roll back George Lucas's work yeah. so that you could see what the the movies were originally like. The Star Wars movies aren't particularly useful um, in my analogy because those are not films where I think you can really interpret, you know, like the Empire Strikes Back special edition as, you know, a new Star Wars film. In George Lucas's case, he just kind of keeps adding stuff. It's merely a worse version of the Star Wars film. Right. But I mean, I think a better analogy might be something like Apocalypse Now. You know, I mm-hmm. haven't seen the, the the latest cut, which I think it's called the final cut, but I have seen the Redux several times and also the original. And I have to say, I like both. There are some decisions made in the Redux that I find a little strange, particularly with how uh, certain scenes are ordered, because the Redux doesn't just add new scenes. It also reorders some of the original scenes. But then the scenes it does add, I mean, I know that people don't like the French plantation scene. I never understood that take. I think it's a really important addition to the film, and it kind of situates the American presence in Vietnam as part of a long legacy of colonialism, which I think is something the original cut was lacking. But in the original cut, I think things are ordered in a way which for me is always read as much more coherent. And I think the uh, kind of climax with Marlon Brando as Colonel Kurtz, you know, it's a lot more austere, it's a lot trimmer, and it works a lot better. In the in the Redux, you spend too much time with him and he's, there's kind of no mystery to any of it. But one of the reasons why I'm anxious about this Wong Kar Wai thing is, in 2008, Wong Kar Wai took one of his earlier films called Ashes of Time and did a Redux version of it. And they said it was because, you know, it was a film that wasn't really widely distributed. When it was distributed, it was often in shoddy looking copies. I first saw it on a really bad bootleg DVD that I got in Chinatown. So so this was an attempt to sort of like refurbish it and, and really make it look good and, and put it out there. But the changes that were made to it, which included new opening credits, you know, new music by Yo-Yo Ma, various subtle but real changes to the visual style of the film. I think what they ultimately served to do was divorce the movie from its original context, which is a mid-90s Hong Kong movie. You know, it's a Wong Kar Wai movie, but it's also a 90s Hong Kong movie. And those are two things I like. But what all the changes served to do was aesthetically put it in line with In the Mood for Love and the post-In the Mood for Love phase of his career. The phase of his career when he really became a global brand. And what's tragic to me is that that's the only version of Ashes of Time you can get now. Well, you're listening to the uh, Hong Kong Cinema Podcast. Uh, (laughs) No, Will and I are trying uh, something new where we also use the show as an opportunity to just hang out because Toronto is back. uh, I mean, as as listeners to our Patreon episodes will know already, Toronto is back under a pretty strict lockdown. In some ways, I think stricter than things were in April. And so obviously, Will and I are not hanging out. We're not able to go for a drink or anything like that. And yet the COVID cases just keep rising. (laughs) I think we hit a new record today but if you if you're finding us uh via the jacobin feed i promise uh you are listening to the michael and us podcast (laughs) we're going to talk about politics uh in a second i suppose we should officially begin things 
Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Uh, I'm the Right Honorable Luke Savage, B-A-M-A. And uh, by the way, if that sounds weird, uh, you might just have some unexamined prejudices. <laughs> I am a master of science of journalism. Did you know that about me? Is your degree, is that technically what it is, a master of science? Correct. So can can you make people call you doctor? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a master. I'm not a PhD. <laughs> and that's a very sore spot for me. Because <laughs> every fucking idiot has a PhD these days. And, and yet me, you know, one of Canada's leading intellectual heavyweights does not. You know, on this podcast, a typical early segment of the show nowadays is for me to ask you about how it's going reading Barack Obama's memoir. <laughs> yeah. Are you finished it? Did you get to page 700? Oh, yeah, I, I finished it. Uh, I'm well into writing a review that I'm co-writing with someone else. It's gonna be a monster review. I'm afraid I don't have a particular passage uh, teed up to share this time. I was revisiting a segment of the book earlier where Obama's talking about his 2008 rallies. And uh, a detail he shares, which I'd forgotten about, is that the song he usually came out to is City of Blinding Lights by U2. Do you know that song? Uh, yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, yeah. whatever. It does, doesn't really <laughs> matter. But I think City of Blinding Lights is a pretty good summation of, of what the book is or, or any of Obama's books, kind of what they are. I've also read The Audacity of Hope and Dreams from My Father. I mean, he is so good at being charming and making himself seem sympathetic and kind of adorning a very status quo and, and kind of small C conservative view of the world with so much window dressing that it actually looks very beautiful. Uh, what's that line from the great, I mean, it's a 2007 Matt Taibbi piece about Obama that's unbelievably perceptive where he says something about how, you know, Obama, you know, he's brilliant at making the couch that we're already sitting on, the road we've already traveled seem like a revolutionary journey into the unknown that's what reading 700 pages of obama's uh, memoir is like while we're talking about current events and stuff i've been uh just just radiating all day for the last 24 hours over tom cruise's leaked audio of him on the set of mission impossible yelling at the crew for violating covid protocol you listen to it right oh it's incredible you're back here in hollywood making movies right now because of us because they believe in us and what we're doing I'm on the phone with every studio at night. Insurance companies. Producers. And they're looking at us and using us to make their movies. We are creating thousands of jobs. Because he is so Tom Cruise. He's <laughs> disappeared so deep. He doesn't know how else to be except Tom Cruise. He's talking as if he's the guy from Magnolia. <laughs> I've noticed a general uptick in like people praising Tom Cruise on my Twitter timeline these days. I I've seen a lot of people posting about his rant and being like, yeah, good for you, Tom Cruise, star of Top Gun. I feel like Tom Cruise, like everybody knows he's weird, but he's figured out in the last couple of years, a way to make that kind of work for him as a brand. <laughs> and part of it is this kooky stunt master phase of his career <laughs> where, where like essentially the Mission Impossible movies are so successful because their pitch is, yes, he's a weird guy. He's crazy. Let, let us make that work for you. Well, see, now you're saying this. This makes me think like, has Tom Cruise become like Bill Murray or or Nicolas Cage where it's <laughs> yeah. like it's like epic bacon for people? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. And also, as movies have declined over the last decade, he's become sort of symbolic of, like, the last movie star. He's the kind of face that just fills a 50-foot screen, the kind of guy they don't make anymore, and he's working harder than he's ever worked before, and people find that 
like moving and powerful. I know I do sometimes. He, I mean, he's great up there on the screen. Uh, he's an amazing movie star. I mean, that clip of him reacting to Tenet was one of the, oh. I mean, it's amazing. Like on the one hand, how much kind of raw animal charisma he was able to bring to his reactions <laughs> to that movie, but also how in typical Tom Cruise fashion, like there's nothing behind the eyes, you know, yeah. in the words of, in the words of Christian Bale, apparently modeled his character in American Psycho on Tom Cruise. The uptick in admiration for Tom Cruise is a little bit funny to me, though, since I think if you took all of the problematic celebrities, all of all of those celebrities who are famously problematic, you know who I'm talking about. We all know who I'm talking about. Tom Cruise may be involved in more human suffering than all of them combined, <laughs> directly complicit. Now, I'm not sure what we as moviegoers should do with that information. I'm not I'm not calling on people to boycott the Mission Impossible yeah, films. Don't I'm not go see do the new Top Gun movie. I mean, that that's absurd. I'm going to see the new Top Gun movie. I'm just saying that he deserves to be in the conversation. You know, when we talk about when we talk about Woody Allen, when we talk about James Toback, we should be talking about Tom Cruise, too, just for the sheer amount of misery he's caused people. <laughs> but but y'all ain't ready to have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there was something I I wanted to talk about uh, before we got to our movie, which is that uh, people are pretty mad at me for this tweet I did about Pete Buttigieg and McKinsey. I assume Uh everyone (laughs) did did Luke cause trouble again. Somebody somebody reported this tweet and I got a notification from uh, the mods at Twitter, like an email uh, saying they evaluated it and actually it checked out. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Yeah. So the system works. Yeah, right. The system works. I'm against breaking up tech monopolies now. I assume everyone who's listening to this has heard that uh, Pete Buttigieg is officially Joe Biden's pick for transport secretary. This is funny for so many reasons. I mean, one, did did I send you that ad that Biden ran? Like Biden ran an attack ad against Pete Buttigieg like in February, which I know it feels like 10 years ago, but it's only 10 months ago. I don't remember it. Well, Biden ran an attack ad against Buttigieg which, you know, basically portrayed him as this like political neophyte, totally inexperienced, never had any experience of government, unlike, you know, the daddy, Joe Biden, you know, who's, who's been at the table for decades. Barack Obama called Joe Biden best vice president America's ever had. But Pete Buttigieg doesn't think much of the vice president's record. Let's compare. When President Obama called on him, Joe Biden helped lead the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which gave health care to 20 million people. And when parkgoers called on Pete Buttigieg, he installed decorative lights under bridges, giving citizens of South Bend colorfully illuminated rivers. Towards the end of the ad, I mean, it, it attacks Pete Buttigieg for firing South Bend's first African-American police chief. So it also kind of intones that Pete Buttigieg is racist. None of this stuff has really appeared in the rather effusive media reporting, which of course has accompanied uh, the Buttigieg announcement as it's accompanied, you know, most Biden appointments where instead of hearing about, you know, people's backgrounds in the drone program or whatever we hear about, you know, how they're a black belt in judo or like whatever the thing is. My absolute favorite media reaction I saw in relation to this news, I've already forgotten the fellow's name. It's probably better I don't name him anyway, but this one belongs in the annals of great media guy tweets. Some guy saying something to the effect of, you know, people are really overstating the ambition angle uh, with regard to Pete Buttigieg. You know, think about Buttigieg is, you know, he's just like a wonky guy that likes to solve problems. In fact, you know, his favorite uh, board game growing up was Ticket to Ride. <laughs> 
Uh, well, let me tell you something. My favorite board game growing up was uh, Diplomacy, and that's why tomorrow Joe Biden will be uh, announcing me as his pick for Secretary of State. Anyway, I got in trouble for this tweet because it, it underscored Pete Buttigieg's connections to McKinsey, which is something that's been, it's really fresh in my mind because I just published a kind of in-depth piece about McKinsey's role in this awful case with the pharmaceutical giant Purdue, in which it helped Purdue spike Oxycontin sales and effectively committed the corporate equivalent of manslaughter. I mean, the New York Times actually obtained documents from McKinsey presentations to Purdue, which show that they actually knew the strategy was going to result in in people dying, and, and they did it anyway. Now, I got a lot of angry reactions for tying Pete to McKinsey and to, you know, particular things like its involvement with Purdue, uh, and also uh, its work with ICE under Donald Trump. People are unfamiliar with that. Uh, McKinsey Consultants actually made a number of recommendations that even career ICE operatives found extreme. You know, cost-cutting measures that included restricting calories and medical supplies to people in detention, things like that. You know, McKinsey has also worked with the Saudi government, all kinds of odious involvements. So a lot of uh, the, the libs got mad, and a lot of them felt it was unfair for me to draw this connection. And I mean, here's the real point. Pete Buttigieg was only with McKinsey for three years. But as anyone familiar with the internal culture of that company already knows, you know, they have high turnover among their consultants. They send their consultants out to do good in the world. But if you're a McKinseyite, you know, at any point, you're a McKinseyite for life. And apart from Harvard University, I understand the company has the most robust uh, alumni network of, of any organization in the world. That's point one. Point two is that Pete Buttigieg absolutely sold himself as somebody who was going to bring, you know, the wonders of management consultancy to governance. That was part, that was a big part of his pitch uh, in South Bend. And in fact, I saw today, you know, Bloomberg had a story. Uh, this is the headline. Mayor Pete's going to need those McKinsey cost-cutting skills to fix the nation's roads and bridges. Um, so McKinsey, you know, his McKinsey background is already forming a part of how his prospective tenure as Secretary of Transport is being discussed. By the way, something else that's funny about that is, you know, when I think of fixing roads and bridges, healing the nation's crumbling infrastructure, the first thing I think about is cutting costs. We all know we, we all know that's how things are done. But when uh, when Pete Buttigieg was mayor of South Bend. He actually did bring his, you know, famous management consultancy chops to the role. He didn't just talk about it. And what that amounted to was was giving, you know, tax breaks to luxury developers. It was ticketing panhandling. It was arresting homeless people. It was spraying underneath a bridge uh, at the Main Street Viaduct in South Bend, which is often used as a shelter by homeless residents, uh, spraying underneath it and installing surveillance cameras to dissuade people from uh, taking shelter there. All of it amounted to an aggressive strategy for gentrifying South Bend, which is very much in keeping with the overall McKinsey ethos. Now, Pete Buttigieg uh, speaks pretty, pretty favorably of McKinsey in his memoir. I'm not talking about his recent book. I'm talking about his election yearbook and he was i checked to see and he was actually asked in an interview once about the company's misdeeds i mean mckinsey became a problem for him during the democratic primary these kinds of connections aren't really it turns out an asset in a democratic primary particularly when the center of gravity you know, is kind of so far to the left that even a Pete Buttigieg has to pretend to be a progressive. Pete Buttigieg was specifically asked in an interview on the work McKinsey did pushing Oxycontin, and he replied very simply that he hadn't followed the story. 
He was also asked about its collaboration with the Saudi regime, and I'll just quote what he said. He, he said, I think you have a lot of smart, well-intentioned people who sometimes view the world in a very innocent way. I wrote my thesis on Graham Greene, who said that innocence is like a dumb leper that has lost his bell, wandering the world, meaning no harm. So um, there's a prize for anybody who can explain to me what the hell that's supposed to mean. But in any case, now that the election's over and Mayor Pete is probably going to be in cabinet unless he doesn't survive his Senate vetting, I expect we'll see a return of this particular part of his brand. And we're going to find that he's a staunch McKinseyite uh, once again. After you tweeted that, I saw somewhere in your Menchies, quote unquote Menchies, one of the more voted on replies um, <laughs> was somebody saying, you know, are we going to take somebody down for jobs they did after college? Like, I have a ton of student debt I have to pay <laughs> off. Like, like, do I get canceled because I worked for DoorDash? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not bringing this up to make fun of it, even though it's like obviously ridiculous. I just feel like really sad about that. Well, yeah, the worst kind of Democratic partisan. I mean, you have, you have the type that are very like upper middle class. You have the Hollywood libs, people like that. And it kind of makes sense because they are just defending like their their own class interest but the saddest type of democratic reply are the people that probably don't have anything like that socioeconomic background uh, and they've just kind of internalized the idea that they're supposed to be very servile and obsequious towards you know a particular class of wealthy people namely the more liberal ones those are the saddest kind of people like that Anyway, I note uh, I note that today uh, talking about the uh, prospective appointment. One of the things Pete said is that he he quote always had a personal love of transportation since childhood. <laughs> and you know we make fun of Pete, but uh, that's what I like about him. I respect the fact that he always speaks in the language of a press release, uh, even when he's saying something like that. You know that's what Patrick Bateman would say if he was appointed Secretary of Transport. <laughs> Well, times are pretty bad right now, so I would like to instead take us back to the end of history, to 1994, for James Cameron's original version of American Beauty, True Lies, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. How'd it go at the convention, honey? You were the big hit of the show. It's fantastic. It's, I love the computer business. For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. <laughs> Back a second. Was the Tasker's office? Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? Harry's in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker. It's not like he's saving the world or anything. I think we wanted to talk about this because we've talked a lot on this podcast about a curious phenomenon of 90s popular cinema, which is the divorced or absentee father movie. And this is a prime example of that genre. You know, other examples would include Liar Liar, Hook, Jungle to Jungle, and of course, the granddaddy of them all, American Beauty. Well, and you're forgetting another Arnold joint, Jingle All the Way, which is in many ways the kind of spiritual brethren of True Lies. More on that in a, in a moment. But yeah, I mean, I've wanted to talk about true lies for months. It seems like such a fruitful topic for the reasons you said, but also because it's just a strange film. I'm unaware of another uh, American blockbuster like this. It seems a pastiche of so many things that aren't usually found in the same film. Tonally, it's all over the place. Uh, it's an action movie. It's a kind of a jingoistic national security movie of, of a very early 1990s kind. It's also a kind of light family comedy. It's full of uh, of zany, sometimes uh, rather tortured and overly literal humor. 
Everything about it is so strange. Uh, it's also a film that uh, features the most uh, obliging terrorists ever committed to celluloid. Crimson Jihad, who having acquired nuclear weapons, are kind enough to detonate one <laughs> on an island in the Florida Keys where it's not going to harm anyone just to show that they can. I mean, where do you even begin with this movie? Well, let's start with the plot. The main character is one Harry Tasker played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, befitting a man with a name like that, Harry Tasker is a regular suburban dad, seemingly a man with a very boring life. Somebody who's often uh, late at the office doing his boring career while his wife, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and his daughter, played by a young Elisha Dushku. That's how you pronounce her name, right? I have no idea. Uh, from Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. They stay at home uh, wondering when he will return. Well, the reason that he's gone so much is because he lives a double life. He is, in fact, also a CIA agent of some kind. He works in a top secret department headed by Charlton Heston and also staffed by the people's favorite beloved comedian Tom Arnold, who serves as the comedy relief of the film constantly getting into uh, international espionage and adventure the sort of adventure that one would expect an austrian bodybuilder to be part of not not so much the life of a boring suburban dad the central conflict of the movie kicks in when uh, harry tasker i i will remind you that is arnold schwarzenegger's name in the film when harry tasker learns that his wife may be conducting an affair She's having this affair with a man who claims that he, in fact, is an international secret agent, played by Bill Paxton. Arnold spends much of the midsection of the film first investigating the relationship and then perpetuating acts of psychological torture on both his wife and the object of her desire. Uh, it turns out Bill Paxton is actually a used car salesman, and the CIA agent act is one of, one of the ruses he uses to get bored suburban housewives. I think it's worth particularly lingering on on this central act of the movie, which in a lot of ways is really heinous. James Cameron reminds me a little bit of David Lynch and that they're both willing to just put their most evil and disgusting thoughts onto a slab, you know, unfiltered for the world to see. What did you think of the gender slash sexual politics of the movie? Well, my my memory of True Lies, which I mean, I think I've seen, I think this is my third time seeing it, although there's been many years kind of between each viewing. You know, my memory of it is that it's very much a kind of, you know, dad in crisis movie like a lot of these other ones we talked about. You know, I brought up Jingle All the Way before, which people haven't seen it. It's a Christmas movie in which Arnold also plays, you know, an absentee father and husband. You know, who's just, you know, he's missing his kid's karate grading. You know, he's just, he's just never there. But his kid is very fond of a superhero by the name of Turbo Man. And so Arnold decides, you know, he's going to smash it with Christmas this year. He's going to hit it out of the park. And he goes out to get a Turbo Man doll. Uh, but he can't find Turbo Man because it's too close to Christmas. Various hijinks ensue. And uh, from my recollection, I mean, it's probably been 15 years or more since I've seen Jingle All the Way. You know, he shows up as Turbo Man at the Santa Claus parade and rescues his son, something like that, who's in some kind of uh, who's in some kind of dilemma. In True Lies, which is basically a mashup of Jingle All the Way and Top Gun, Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually basically a superhero. You know, he is a bad father and he's a bad husband. He's a white collar pencil pusher uh, who doesn't do anything interesting. His official line is, that, you know, he's some kind of international computer salesman. You know, his wife is clearly not satisfied sexually. His daughter is, you know, stealing from uh, stealing from people. She's beyond his control. 
you know, she's beyond the reach of his uh, patriarchal authority. She's riding off with her boyfriend on a motorcycle. You know, here the movie very much kind of ties in with the sort of, you know, I don't know, Reagan era moral panics of like, you know, not just the father in crisis, but the family in crisis as an institution. Arnold's friend says to him, you know, uh, her parents are Axl Rose and Madonna now. You know, she's stealing that money to pay for an abortion. She's probably not even a virgin. But as we learn in the film, the real reason why Arnold is so bad at his job is just because he's too dang patriotic and he's too dang busy uh, saving his country and, you know, tango doing the tango with Tia Carrera in Austria while, you know, infiltrating international terrorist cells. So what's great about this movie is that, you know, Arnold... You know, his character plays a double life, but I think in the kind of uh, symbolic reading of the film, you know, he is also kind of a split personality. You know, he is the typical suburban dad in crisis, but, you know, he's also the ultimate alpha male, you know, his jawline looking like it's been carved out of marble. And it turns out, you know, the reason that he's such a bad dad is because he's too busy serving his country. So I agree that the film has, you know, pretty problematic gender politics, but I think that's the lens lens that you read it through. I'm going to give the movie the kind of maybe by now facile reading that we often give movies like this, which is that it's an end of history parable. The midsection of the movie, the section that most deals with Bill Paxton and Jamie Lee Curtis's almost affair, climaxes with an incredible few scenes where Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom Arnold use basically the CIA resource to do a sting operation on this. They, they use the vast apparatus of the American deep state to investigate whether uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is actually having an affair, which, by the way, it turns out she's not. No, uh, but I mean, it's probably preferable that they use it for this than to like depose some democratically elected government somewhere. Don't Well, don't worry, because as Arnold assures him, uh, they're also doing that. <laughs> Anyway, they they break into Bill Paxton's house and they kidnap both of them and they take Jamie Lee Curtis to an interrogation room where behind a one way mirror, they interrogate her about her sex life. Right. And the, and the crucial detail here uh, that you learn is that Jamie Lee Curtis is not, in fact, having an affair um, you know, she's just missing a sense of adventure in her life. Right. Um, you know, there's a thrill that's missing from the marriage. She says, I needed to feel alive. I wanted so- I wanted to do something outrageous. So that's, uh, you know, the explanation she gives for why she was going to go off to Paris with this guy that she thought was a spy. Well, this is when the movie reminded me of American Beauty, because we've used the term so much on this podcast, but they're both end of history movies where all the battles have been won and everybody's comfortable. And the landscapes of these movies are, are landscapes of upper middle class actors affluence and yet people are still unhappy they've got everything and there's still this general sense of malaise and ennui and as you mentioned the jamie lee curtis character needs excitement much like kevin spacey in american beauty does what do women really want you take these bored housewives married to the same guy for years they're stuck in a rut they need some release i mean you got to work on their dreams get them out of their daily suburban grind for a few hours what about their husbands dickless i mean Let's face it, if they took care of business, I'd be out of business, you know what I mean? (laughs) Those idiots. Why don't we go through the third act of the film, which is where it really shifts, you know, away from the sort of comedy family drama type movie into the kind of jingoist national security film that it's probably best remembered for being. Mm -hmm. Basically, it turns out that uh, Tia Carrera, who is some kind of criminal art dealer who specializes in dealing ancient relics from the Middle East, is working with uh, Crimson Jihad, which is some kind of, you know, generic Arab terrorist organization. Uh, I think it goes without saying the film is uh, is pretty racist. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so Tia Carrera is working with them. Their plan is to uh, intimidate the United States into withdrawing all its forces from the Middle East in perpetuity. As part of this plan, they kidnap Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis uh, and take them to an island in the Florida Keys where they reveal their plan, which is to pour concrete over uh, a nuclear warhead that they've somehow acquired and detonate it to threaten the people of America and show that they, you know, they can do the same to, uh, you know, one American city every week unless their demands are met. This leads to the final action sequence, or I suppose the final few action sequences in the film. You know, it's amazing summarizing it. You realize there's not actually that much plot at all. M- much of the film is just uh, exquisitely well-directed, you know, James Cameron action sequences. The first one of these involves a shootout where, you know, Arnold, whose wife has just learned that he's actually a combination of John Rambo and James Bond. He gets to show off his, you know, incredible ninja skills, his ability to survive an interrogation, his deadliness with a firearm. Uh, there's one point where he kind of devises a makeshift flamethrower. That's pretty cool. Jamie Lee Curtis as well. Uh, you know, the beast is unlocked in her. She rather comedically drops an Uzi and shoots a bunch of the terrorists at a crucial moment. She thinks Arnold has been killed and she's driven away in a limousine uh, with Tia Carrera, where presumably they're traveling to blow up Miami or something like that. Arnold, however, uh, has survived and linked up with his uh, his military buddies. This leads to what's probably the most, I don't know, visually exciting sequence of the movie where a bunch of Harrier jets attack this convoy uh, as it travels along the bridges of the Florida Keys and, and kind of blows parts of them up. It's pretty cool. James Cameron is really good at not just like directing action sequences, but also having great ideas for action sequences. Like that one early in the middle section of the movie where Arnold is chasing that guy, the guy's riding a motorcycle and Arnold's riding a horse and they end up pursuing each other through various hotel lobbies and boardrooms just just great stuff every action scene like tells a story and has a great gimmick right and so just when you think the movie's over I mean basically uh Arnold rescues Jamie Lee Curtis and he assures her you know we're at a sufficient distance that you know this this uh, nuke that's about to go off uh, is not going to harm us And uh, I think, you know, very symbolically, they kiss, you know, symbolizing that their love has been rekindled, uh, their marriage has been restored, right as the bomb goes off, right as this nuke goes off in the distance. But then there's a twist, which is that uh, Arnold's daughter has actually been kidnapped by the terrorists who are holding out in Miami on the top of a building. This leads to the final action sequence of the movie where Arnold himself pilots... (laughs) (laughs) literally pilots one of the Harrier jets and uh, rescues his daughter while destroying several (laughs) of the upper floors on this building. And it's good. Yeah, and, and yeah, killing all the enemies inside. And yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty exciting. The main bad guy ends up getting shot off the side of the Harrier jet on a warhead, which then uh, hits a helicopter mm-hmm. and kills all the remaining bad guys. After which Arnold says, uh, you're fired. Right. One of the classic one-liners. Then there's a little epilogue uh, one year later where you see that the family has reunited. Arnold has reconstituted himself as the uh, ideal husband and father. And it turns out that both him and Jamie Lee Curtis have now been conscripted uh, into Omega Sector or whatever the made up deep state organ he serves is called. In the final scene, they infiltrate a ball just like the one that he infiltrates in the opening sequence of the film. And while they're supposed to be doing espionage, they're too dang busy doing the tango because the fire of their love has been rekindled. And then the movie ends. Is there some symbolic reading to be done of the final scene with regards to, I guess, uh, the human condition in 1994 America? Uh, I mean, if the movie is an end of history parable, as I believe it is, what is the movie's ultimate prescription for how to deal with suburban malaise? 
Okay, so uh, we saved the best for last because we've held off on summarizing uh, quite deliberately what I think is the most crucial scene in the movie, which comes in the middle section. When Jamie Lee Curtis believes that she's been conscripted to be a spy and is playing a call girl who's been given a series of instructions, presumably by the deep state, about how to conduct herself in this hotel room. Little does she know that Arnold is the one in there, his face shrouded in darkness, his voice coming through a little uh, cassette tape player uh, that has the voice of some French guy on it. And I think the scene really ties together both the kind of uh, romantic family elements of this movie and also the kind of action movie and national security elements of, of the movie. The crux of the scene is that despite a little bit of awkwardness in the execution, Jamie Lee Curtis is able to perform her role perfectly. And I think the film strongly implies that she's actually quite enjoying it. Once she's able to let loose from her kind of staid suburban identity, she relishes, you know, dancing sexily uh, in this hotel room. Yeah, that scene reminded me of that scene in Lost Highway where Patricia Arquette is stripped at gunpoint for Robert Loja. Yeah, I mean, it's maybe less disturbing than that. But yeah, I do see the parallel. You know, meanwhile, the camera keeps cutting to Arnold's face. And even though, you know, he's kind of uh, working undercover here, and this is just this scene happens just before they're kidnapped. You know, you can tell that, you know, he's really enjoying himself as well, because the marriage is also dead at his end. So I agree with your end of history reading of the movie. But I have, I think, an even more kind of specific way of interpreting this. This film came out came out in 1994 just after the Gulf, and I think it very much needs to be seen in that light. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd, when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League, and a member of the United Nations was crushed. Its people brutalized. I see the Tasker's marriage as a metaphor for America after the Cold War. This is a film about the end of history, and by way of reassurance, just like the Gulf War, it's a film about how America may have been, you know, emasculated. It, it has no great enemies to fight. It's, a glor- it's the glorified computer salesman of geopolitics. It's in a boring marriage. And the film is and the film is telling everyone not to worry about that. And this is ultimately why I think the hotel room scene where Jamie Lee Curtis dances in front of Arnold without realizing that it is Arnold is the most important scene in the movie. It's a scene that I think can be interpreted as a metaphor for the Gulf War. It's true nature in many ways opaque to the actors involved. You know, Donald Rumsfeld seems like he's told Iraq to invade Kuwait. No one involved, you know, really has the full picture of what's going on. But at the end of the day, you know, everybody gets off. You know, everybody's watching CNN. Everyone's rediscovering that lost thrill of the Cold War, which uh, in the context of the movie, you know, is presumably the sizzling courtship before the marital vows and the, uh, the staid suburban existence. Those things, of course, representing the end of history. I alluded to it already, but the scene in which the Taskers officially reconsummate their marriage or sort of symbolically reconsummate their marriage comes not in the hotel room scene, but at the moment of a nuclear detonation. And who do they run into during this final op? No less than Simon, the used car salesman played by Bill Paxton, who is up to his old tricks uh, once again, pretending to be a spy to try and seduce women. He's quickly exposed by Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis and runs screaming from the room. Uh, He, of course, represents America's new geopolitical rivals, who are, of course, not really rivals at all. 
the Soviet Union being gone, the odd oil nation to keep in check, and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis, who represent America in the 90s, the age of full-spectrum dominance, have no problem doing so. The film, just like the Gulf War, which everybody watched on CNN and celebrated at ticker tape parades, is saying, well, don't worry, history may be over. We've all settled into our boring suburban jobs. The communist menace has been conquered, but we're still number one. (laughs) And you may think you're a dad in crisis, but in the chest of every suburban American male beats the heart of a lion. What can I say? I'm a spy. Hold on. For the ride of your life. The motion picture event of the year is finally here. July 15th. Arnold Schwarzenegger, True Lies, rated R. So I don't know if that reading uh, makes sense to you. It's one of those things that, you know, I start telling myself uh, as as kind of ha- like I'm half joking. And then as I'm saying it, I realize that, no, that actually is very much uh, what this film is and what it's about. I think it is like movies are the collective unconscious. And there's a reason they don't make movies like True Lies anymore. Now they make movies about like our wounded valor featuring sad James Bond or sad Batman. <laughs> well, you know, you say they don't make uh, movies like this anymore. But according to the Wikipedia page for True Lies, Cameron began developing it as a possible TV series uh, in 2010. And in May 2019, the director and producer Joseph McGinty Nicole announced that the film is going to receive a television series on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> so we're going to get True Lies. God, God willing, we're going to get True Lies uh, on Disney+. Plus. Is Arnold coming back? I, I doubt it. I mean, I feel like it's going to be one of those, you know, Star Wars The Force Awakens thing where it's both a sequel and a reboot. Also like the Jumanji sequel, where it's kind of nominally tied to the same universe, but it just has like an entirely new cast and it really has nothing to do with the original. Well, hopefully there will be a wise mentor figure played by everyone's favorite character from the first film, Mr. Tom Arnold. Another tie-in that's pretty hilarious is apparently there are several True Lies video games for the uh, Super Nintendo, the Sega Genesis, the Game Gear, and the Game Boy. I think I still have my Game Gear somewhere that was like given to me probably the same Christmas that uh, Christmas 94 when True Lies came out. I was a Game Boy child myself. I was later a Game Boy child because of Pokemon. But anyway, if we ever expand Michael and us uh, to the realm of Twitch, I guess we can play the True Lies video (laughs) game along with the tie-in to give my regards to Broad Street. Now watch this drive. See you next time, folks. With marching bands, yellow ribbons, and hymns of praise. Washington, D.C. said welcome home to the men and women of Desert Storm. It was the U.S. Capitol's biggest military parade since the World War II era, and the hardware that helped win the Gulf War was on display. Rolling through the streets, streaking through the sky, about 200,000 spectators gathered for the site. They included the President of the United States, the First Lady, and the Commander-in-Chief of Operation Desert Storm, General Norman Schwarzkopf. The greatest feeling you can get in a gym or the most satisfying feeling you can get in the gym is the pump. Let's say you drain your biceps, blood is rushing into your muscles and that's what we call the pump. Your muscles get a really tight feeling, like your skin is going to explode any minute. You know, it's really tight, it's like somebody blowing air into, into your muscle. It just blows up and it feels different, it feels fantastic.
it's as satisfying to me as uh, coming is, you know, as uh, having sex with a woman and coming. And so can you believe how much I am in heaven? I'm like uh, getting the feeling of coming in the gym, I'm getting the feeling of coming at home, I'm getting the feeling of coming backstage when I pump up, when I pose out in front of 5,000 people, I get the same feeling. So I'm coming day and night. I mean, it's terrific, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm in heaven.